This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. Under attack, critical U.S. infrastructure infiltrated all fingers pointing to state-sponsored Chinese hackers. Microsoft warning the attack singled out the U.S. island territory of Guam, raising national security concerns. But was Taiwan the intended target? That's due to Guam being the centerpiece of any U.S. military response to a Taiwan invasion. And it goes further. The U.S. and allies warn this could be happening globally. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Before we dive into today's news, make sure to use the link below to subscribe to our newsletter. Each week, we'll round up the highlights and controversies happening around China and the world and share an exclusive behind-the-scenes snapshot with our readers. Keep an eye out. The newsletter will land in your inbox Friday morning. U.S. critical infrastructure attacked by Chinese state-sponsored hackers. That's the word from the U.S., Western allies and Microsoft on Wednesday. But they warned this could be happening globally. The attack is apparently ongoing. Microsoft urging impacted customers to close or change credentials for all compromised accounts. The espionage also targeted the U.S. island territory of Guam, home to strategically important American military bases. That's raising concerns that Taiwan could be the intended target. The New York Times noting Guam would be central to the U.S. military response to a move against Taiwan. The hacking group is codenamed Volt Typhoon and has been in operation since 2021. The National Security Agency put out a bulletin Wednesday detailing how the hack works and how cybersecurity teams should respond. According to the New York Times, U.S. intelligence agencies became aware of the incursion in February. That's around the same time the Chinese spy balloon incident made headlines. Microsoft adding in the report that mitigating this attack could be challenging. Analysts say this is one of the largest known Chinese cyber espionage campaigns against American critical infrastructure. China fired back. With the foreign ministry spokesman calling the reports a collective disinformation campaign initiated by the U.S. and the Five Eyes. That's a reference to the intelligence sharing group made up of the U.S., Canada, New Zealand, Australia and the U.K., adding the U.S. made up the report for, quote, geopolitical purposes. And this isn't the first time of a Chinese hack. Back in 2020, suspected Chinese state-backed hackers breached prominent U.S. law firm Covington and Burling. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency issuing a joint statement with international and domestic intelligence services, warning Chinese attacks continue to pose a risk to American intellectual property. China is bracing for the next big wave of COVID-19 infections expected to peak this June. A top epidemiologist predicting over 60 million will catch it per week when the wave hits and noting that authorities are preparing vaccines. The U.S. is also monitoring the situation in China. Here are the details. 65 million COVID-19 infections in China per week. That's what a top Chinese expert says could happen this June. Zhou Nanshan is the lead scientist at China's National Health Commission. Speaking at a biotech forum in China on Monday, Zhou said the upcoming wave of infections is already on the rise. 
He noted infections could hit 40 million per week by the end of this May, adding the new wave is driven by the new XBB variants of Omicron. To cope with the situation, Zhong said authorities are preparing new vaccines that target the XBB variants. Two of them already have initial approval, and three more are expected to be greenlit soon, though he didn't give details. Reacting to the news, a resident living in China told NTD that people fear harsh lockdowns more than actual infection. People are really afraid of COVID-19 lockdowns. They're less afraid of everything else. Stores closed their doors in droves during previous lockdowns. Beijing implemented severe lockdown measures after the CCP virus, which causes COVID-19, hit the country. The lockdowns sent China's economy reeling. Factories halted production. Businesses closed doors. Residents were banned from leaving their homes. The situation came to a head when a fire broke out in China's western Xinjiang region last year, killing 10 people. First responders were unable to reach the blaze due to blockades meant to keep residents inside. The tragedy sparked anger across China. Protests broke out around the country over Beijing's lockdown measures. Some protesters asked the Chinese Communist Party to step down. People also demanded freedom. Following the protests, Beijing lifted the lockdown measures and reopened its border. It remains to be seen how the next wave would play out. China said about 80 million elderly people in the country have not been vaccinated or boosted. This group is at a relatively high risk of infection. It remains to be seen how the next wave would play out. China said about 80 million elderly people in the country have not been vaccinated or boosted. This group is at a relatively high risk of infection. We'll keep you updated as the situation develops. Juliet Song, NTD News. The U.S. responded Wednesday to China's COVID-19 developments. Here's what a State Department spokesperson had to say. In conjunction with the CDC, we are monitoring the situation but don't have any updates at this time. He added that there have been discussions among allies and partners on the reports about the issue. President Biden will soon announce his nominee for America's highest military position. The post is called the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But Biden's nominee stands out in several areas. One of them involves his experience countering China. Let's dive in. Biden's pick is Air Force General C.Q. Brown Jr. He is chief of staff of the Air Force and a career F-16 fighter pilot. He served as the Pacific Air Force's commander, where he led the nation's air strategy to counter the Chinese regime in the Indo-Pacific. Biden reportedly sees Brown as the right person for the job because of his work modernizing the U.S. fleet of aircraft and his experience with China. The nomination has long been expected. Brown would replace Army General Mark Milley if confirmed by the Senate. The president plans to unveil Brown as his pick during a Rose Garden event this afternoon. Bank of America is joining the wave of companies scaling back their operations in China. The financial giant has told around 40 of its bankers in Asia Wednesday to look for new roles within the organization. Those who can't find another role within a few months may face redundancy. 
Most of those work in junior roles and in Chinese equities. Only a handful are in banking and markets divisions. What's more, around half are based out of Hong Kong, with a focus on China. The bank employs nearly 217,000 employees worldwide as of late March. But stalled deals and sluggish prospects in China has prompted the bank to refocus and cut back. The bank expects to shrink that headcount to 213,000 by the end of June. That's according to an executive. Unlike some other Wall Street banks, Bank of America has largely avoided layoffs in Asia this year. But the pressure is on, as global investors shy away from betting on China amid U.S. tensions with Beijing. Worth noting, those investors are the biggest buyers of Chinese stocks. But the current caution toward the country hasn't always been there. Bank of America's business in China stretches back to 2005. That year, it acquired 9% of the nation's second-largest bank, China Construction Bank. That investment totaling $3 billion at the time. A spokesperson for the bank declined to give press comment on the reshuffle. Spaces for free speech in Hong Kong are shrinking. One of Hong Kong's last remaining voices in mainstream media that are critical of Beijing getting axed earlier this month. Before that, the political cartoon column had been running for nearly 40 years. Here's the story. Wang Geiguan, better known by pen name Junzi, was cut from the pages of the Ming Pao. While the newspaper did not give an official reason, it had received six government complaints where his drawings mocking policy decisions were called misleading, deceiving the public, or slanderous. Ming Pao was the last paper to carry Junzi's cartoons since police raided and shut down the pro-democracy Apple Daily in 2021, following a sweeping national security law. The 67-year-old cartoonist defended his right to express himself. Besides news reports, comics can serve as a record of society's emotions, some layman's ideas, or the thoughts of the masses, and to question and challenge. I believe this is something that should be done in a healthy society and environment. Junzi cartoons gained a huge following after he began in the 1980s. They touched on growing pains as Hong Kong transitioned from a British colony to Chinese rule. He also took on human rights in China and the city's major democracy movements in 2014 and 2019. There are fewer and fewer newspapers, and there has been a tightening control over the newspapers, even resorting to legal accusations. It was rare in the past, but now it's very intense, even more severe than in places like Singapore. We used to say that Hong Kong was similar to Singapore, but now it's even worse than Singapore. When asked about Ming Pao's decision, Hong Kong leader John Lee said the city legally enshrines press freedoms, but the government is also obliged to oppose false and biased messages. Ming Pao, meanwhile, expressed gratitude to Wong for his four decades of work. In recent weeks, public libraries across the city have pulled Wong's books from their shelves. They've also recently pulled books related to the bloody 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown, discussion of which used to be allowed in Hong Kong unlike in mainland China, where it is a censored and taboo topic. That's after a government-backed commission said in April it had reviewed public libraries and removed books which are manifestly contrary to the interests of national security. Hong Kong's national security law, which punishes acts such as subversion and collusion with foreign forces with possible life imprisonment, has been criticized as a tool of repression by the West. Chinese authorities, however, say the security law has brought stability after the mass pro-democracy protests in 2019. Wong says he won't leave the city and will continue to draw.
JODC. It's somewhat similar to being a firefighter in this line of work. Firefighters only go places where there are fires, but they can't just rush to every fire they see. Firefighters can't flee when they see a fire, so we should stay put and record our times. In his final Mingpao strip, Wong drew his main character, a lawmaker playfully named someone, whoever, and his wife noticing a rainstorm worsening, waving goodbye to readers before walking away huddled beneath an umbrella. A Malaysian comedian is now an internet favorite after turning to public mockery of China's Communist Party. His appeal continues to grow even after Beijing slapped a ban on his social media accounts. Here's the story. China, good country, good country. <laughs> good country, good country. Woo. We have to say that now, correct? All their phone listening, all their phone listening. Our phone tap into it. Long live presidency. Long live presidency. UK-based Malaysian comedian Nigel Ung was best known for his character Uncle Roger. His witty commentary on Western chefs attempting Asian cooking earned him over 7.7 million subscribers on YouTube. Last Friday, Ung was suspended from China's Twitter equivalent, a microblogging site called Weibo. The crackdown came after he took jabs at Beijing's hardline policies over issues ranging from surveillance to Taiwan. But Ung's outspokenness marks a radical shift. In 2021, he took down a video about dumplings, co-hosted with popular YouTuber Mike Chen. Chen has been critical of Beijing's persecutions of Christians, Uyghurs, Muslims, and Falun Gong practitioners. He also tweeted in solidarity with the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. Ung apologized after removing the video, saying he had made a bad social impact and that he had been unaware of Chen's past incorrect remarks about China. His move drew widespread outrage from his audience, who accused him of bowing to Beijing. Under the CCP's authoritarian rule, if you are not a descendant of party cadre, you won't benefit from flattering them, but will rather lose a lot of overseas fans. Anti-communism has become the trend of the times and the people. You can win back followers by openly speaking up. Concerns are mounting as Beijing grows less tolerant of stand-up comedy. In the same week, Chinese comedian Li Haoshi was arrested for poking fun at the military, comparing Beijing's troops to dogs chasing a squirrel. The performing arts community in China is overwhelmed with depression and suffocation. The scariest thing is that you don't know which word or phrase will cross the CCP's red line. Jie also said that no dictatorship is as sensitive and vulnerable as communist China is today. Even those within the party are wary of each other. A Chinese vessel has been caught plundering graves at sea. According to Malaysian media, the vessel illegally salvaged the remains of two British warships last week. The battleship wreck sit in Malaysian waters and were officially designated as war graves. In December 1941, Japanese bombers sank both ships, the HMS Prince of Wales and battlecruiser HMS Repulse, along with 840 sailors on board. That was only days after the attack on Pearl Harbor. The steel used for warships at the time was of high quality, meaning it can still be smelted into new products today. The salvage vessel, known as Chuang 68, belongs to a maritime company in southern China. The ship is also wanted by Indonesian authorities. That's for plundering the wrecks of Dutch warships in the Java Sea. Beyond that, the vessel is notorious for looting World War II shipwrecks in Singaporean, Cambodian and Vietnamese waters over the years. 
Beijing claims almost the entire South China Sea as its sovereign territory and routinely encroaches on the exclusive economic zones of its neighbors. That's despite a 2016 international arbitration ruling that invalidated those claims. Chinese computer maker Lenovo seeing a dramatic plunge in its fourth quarter revenue. This as demand for computers grapples with a slump. Here's more. Sales tumbled again at Lenovo over the latest quarter. The world's biggest PC maker saw revenue fall 24% to just over $12.6 billion. That as demand for computers slumped. Wednesday's figures marked the third straight quarter of declines. Revenues for the full year fell too, marking the first such drop since 2019. Lenovo had benefited from a huge surge in sales during the global health crisis as people and firms geared up for home working. But revenue started contracting last year as that effect wore off. Global PC shipments across the industry were down 29% over the January to March quarter. They dropped to just under 57 million units, less than in pre-health crisis years. To improve profit margins, Lenovo is now expanding into other product lines. That includes smartphones, servers and IT services. Its non-PC business grew over the year and now accounts for about 40% of its income. Coming up, mixed signals from President Biden at the G7 summit. He said the U.S. ought to take a tougher stance on China, while also noting he sees a coming thaw with Beijing. To help make sense of what U.S. policy might look like going forward, we hear from Stephen Yates, former Deputy National Security Advisor at the White House. He's also China Policy Initiative Chair at the America First Policy Initiative. It's just another reason not to have this verbal game. Just say what America's policy toward China is. Just say what America's policy toward democratic Taiwan is. More from him after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Will the United States take a harder stance on China? Or are we headed in the opposite path? At the G7 summit, President Biden said the U.S. should be strict on China, but also explained he sees a coming thaw. What might Washington's policy now look like going forward? We spoke to Stephen Yates, former Deputy National Security Advisor at the White House, to learn more. Steve Yates, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I want to look at U.S.-China relations and policy, and if that's changed, because recently President Biden was at the G7 summit in Japan. He issued quite a harsh statement towards China with the Quad leaders while there. But at the same time, he says he sees this thawing relationship with Beijing and called the spy balloon incident earlier this year silly. So how should we read all of this? Well, it really was a complicated mix of mix messaging coming out of the president and, frankly, out of the G7. Uh, the president spoke frequently and enthusiastically about the unity among the G7 with regard to uh, standing up to CCP malign influences, uh, demanding accountability, a host of other measures. And he also talked about this notion of there being a thaw. And then there was this other kind of verbal game of de-risking U.S.-China relations versus decoupling uh, our economies. 
And the first thing the Chinese government did was decouple from Micron semiconductors. And so there was just a ton of mixed messaging out of this. And it, to me, seemed like a basic kindergarten tutorial on dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. They deal in actions and power, and they don't really respect the word games that silly academics and policy advisors want to give presidents, whether they're talking about pivots to Asia or return to dialogue or establishing hotlines. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't really care much about those things. Uh, and it's, it's basically continuing to push its advantages. So uh, there's no more unity among the G7 on China than there has been on Russia, Ukraine. We still have France, Germany, uh, and some others engaged in hot pursuit of economic opportunity and dependence upon both of those countries while giving lip service to deterrence and needing to take a tougher approach. I didn't see a lot of progress. And Steve, during the speech, there was another part that stood out where Biden talks about the one China policy and then almost in the same vein, he also mentions how the U.S. will help Taiwan defend itself. What, what does that even mean? Well, it's extremely troubling when the president just ad-libs about the one China policy and talks about Taiwan. On the one hand, he seems to accidentally or genuinely say some very good things about the nature of U.S. support for Taiwan, that if China gets too aggressive, the United States will, in fact, intervene or support Taiwan. That helps with deterrence. But then there's the other part of the president where he continues to talk. And the rest of what he says kind of calls into question whether he meant those messages of assurance, because he gives just as much assurance to China when he continues to talk. Uh, and so the, the definition of the one China policy was the first I have ever heard that version. In 50 years, I don't think anyone else has given that version of that definition of the one China policy. Basically, he accidentally referred to both countries. Then he said, oh, I mean regions. Uh, and he said, basically, they can do whatever they choose. Well, that's not actually what the one China policy has been. And frankly, to me, it's just another reason not to have this verbal game. Just say what America's policy toward China is. Just say what America's policy toward democratic Taiwan is. And Steve, given that, what does this mean for Taiwan going forward? Realistically, it has to raise some uncertainty among Taiwan's leaders. They're going through an election season. Uh, and so while they're going through that competition for votes and support at home, there's going to be, I think, a degree of unease about can they rely upon clarity and firmness from President Biden. And for now, I think they have to have some doubts. I hope that the Biden administration, starting with the president, kind of simplifies and reaffirms what some of these building blocks should be. And Steve, on the note of these word games, how likely is the U.S. foreign policy to change going forward? 
Well, our policy will change however our national security imperatives dictate. If there's a crisis or an attack, if there's more aggression against us on our own homeland, uh, if there's a massive cyber attack or another pandemic, there's a whole host of variables that could completely change everything. And really, Americans only tend to change course when shocked into having to do so. Uh, and that's when kind of the will of the people pushes the establishment or leadership class of Washington to change what they say and what they do. With U.S.-China relations, that has not happened very often, even though we've had some big shocks. So I'd be very humble about asserting that a big change is coming soon. But in my travels around the country and in dealings with multiple governors and multiple state legislatures, from the grassroots up, Americans see China very differently than presidents do and then congressional leaders do. And so I think that our own election cycles has a lot of sorting to do with regard to what American priorities are toward China policy. So I think we're looking at a 2025 adjustment unless China provokes a change sooner. And Steve, with all the areas covered today, any final thoughts you'd like to share? Well, I always think that these G summits, whether the number is low or high, they're a little bit confusing to people. It's important that our leaders get together and hash out where we stand. I wouldn't be too dispirited by the divisions among the G7. I think it's a fact of life. Uh, but I think the high point is that the government of Japan has really stepped into the breach and has adopted a lot of policies that push uh, the Asia-Pacific region and the rest of the G7 to think harder about this. And it's not just the U.S. and China in this conversation, but Japan is in the conversation as a full stakeholder, and so should Europe and the other members of the G7. Steve Yates, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus.ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.